Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Started Out Podcast. This is continuing a five, maybe more part series of conversations I had at FETC. We were kind of at the intersection of entrepreneurialism and ed tech. And uh, today's episode is with Justin Riley. He is the CEO of Imperio. And this conversation went deep fast. I loved it because it had a very international uh, focus to it. And you'll be able to pick up on his accent right away and realize why. Um, But Justin had some unbelievably keen insights and their focus uh, is is really extraordinary. I this is one of those guests that I had that I like. Okay, we need to follow up, and we've had some conversations since. And I really enjoy um, where Justin is going and where he's taking his company, but also his focus on um, ed tech and how it's moving us forward. So, for those and many other reasons, I enjoyed this conversation. It is a very uh, in depth one. If you'd like to learn more about Imperio, I have all those. Descriptions in the show notes, but I think that you're going to really, really enjoy Justin's insights and his passion. All right, so let's get right down to it. Justin Riley. All right, now we're joined by Justin Riley. He is the CEO of Imperio. I've been enjoying our conversation off air. Um, tell us a little bit about Imperio, and then I'm going to start going off the deep end on some of these awesome things you guys are doing. Go ahead. So we were born as an organization in 2002. Um, the founder uh, was working on developing network management tools. So schools at that time would have increasingly sophisticated technology within the school estate, but they were struggling, I think, across the world to manage the estate particularly effectively. You know, they weren't Cisco-trained engineers, they weren't at the high end of technology, and yet they're being asked to, to develop technology and put it into schools in ways that, at that point in time, nobody really understood and knew what the consequences were. So Imperio was, was developed to create a safer uh, and more manageable environment for that technology stack and has grown and evolved since then as the needs in the schools have changed. So we moved from just working on the network piece to devices within the classrooms as well. And if you're managing the devices and the deployment of software and application of devices in the classroom, yeah. then it makes sense you can also be monitoring what's happening on those devices. So right. the next step was to create the classroom tools you see today where teachers are able to monitor what children are doing on the devices in real time. Now, that's for me as a teacher, that's a really interesting thing to be in because that means that not only can I look at whether children are on task and I can look at whether... Um, they're doing what they should be doing, actually I can start to get involved pedagogically. So I can start to use it as a teaching tool. Right. Now that's not a replacement for what they're doing already, you know, mobility around the classroom and good question and asking techniques. They're still really great things to do. But this is another tool and another way to engage with the learner in terms of what they're doing pedagogically. Then on top of that, you could get into safeguard uh, and well-being. So one of the things that we want to do is to protect children and make sure that they're using technology effectively but you also want to be looking for whether they're behaving appropriately or whether they're at risk or whether there are things going on within the school estate on the technology that really should be intervened with and should be taken care of. So obviously there's kind of like two tracks I'm hearing. Um, Let's start off on on the negative side you're looking out for some key words, making sure kids aren't radicalized. Are. Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, worked with a number of agencies and a number of charities, and we've built a bank of well over 20,000 key words. Mm-hmm. And we use those key words to try and spot whether a child is either doing something 
or he's potentially being groomed. Uh, groomed. Yeah. Um, and this can be self-harm, this can be bullying, this can be radicalization. You know, the, the, the list of things that we're talking about here are extensive across many different countries. And for us, it's about gathering the information and monitoring that and flagging it to the right people so they can then intervene. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I think that's, and I hate to start off on the negative because there's a lot of positive here, but um, yeah, early detection uh, on some of the, it, it's, it's neat that it, it, they're being monitored on, on some of the things they're working on, something they're passionate about, but also before this gets out of hand, uh, having your teachers and, be, and parents be aware of it is mm. pretty darn important too. Uh, and then, yeah, all of a sudden, I started thinking about the complexities and how many countries you guys are in and how many different keywords are in different areas and colloquialisms and everything else. I, I mean, you know, the, there's never going to be enough. You know, the, yeah. the, the number of keywords that we wish to, to pull down, it changes on a regular basis. So we work with the leading agencies in their field to, to, to bring those wow. keywords into one space. We're forever going out. Each year, we go out and harvest more keywords, keep them updated quite a big piece of our work and our research is to understand not just in one country but multiple countries what we should be looking for and increasingly we have a white paper that we're releasing at the moment which is uh, um, particularly interesting but in that there's been research into how children are using technology and mm -hmm. not just the keywords themselves but actually the tone the language the, the phraseology the subject matter all these things are, are intrinsic into understanding whether a child is at risk in some shape form description even up to and including filters they may be using on pictures. So if they've been uploading pictures, research has shown that if they're using filters of a, a gray, blue you know, hue, mm -hmm. then there's probably something more to worry about there than perhaps if they're using warmer colors. You know? So state of wow. mind and mental health is, is starting to be seen. So you can even have an early detector on your daughter or son potentially is going through some hard times. We're seeing a pattern here. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I mean, yeah, just where data is going and like how we're starting. Like, I just read an article not too long ago that there's a lot of cases that some of these big data companies know what you're going to do before you know what you're going to do because well, yeah. they know your pattern so well. Um, but but I think that's the positive side of it. Like, hey, before your you know, son or daughter really goes off the deep end, this is what we're noticing. Uh, and, you know, and having the teacher be aware of that and maybe involve the parent and things of that nature. Well, so. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, when people talk about data and talk about profiling, which is what you're talking about, yeah. there are so, so many negative connotations. What we try and do is to make sure that you couldn't identify an individual through the data that we host. That's down to the school to identify the individual. What we can do, though, is increasingly over time, develop our insights and develop our understanding and start to spot things earlier and earlier and earlier yeah. so that the opportunity to do a soft intervention becomes much more likely rather than having to do a hard Absolute, intervention. Yes. And yes. This is about, then it's about education. So a soft, a soft intervention rather is about identifying something that you could educate a broader audience with to hopefully stimulate something and stop it before it happens. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I, I never heard the soft intervention. I, I makes a lot of sense and and a lot of times people are less guarded if you're kind of generally bringing up some problems you're seeing as opposed to if it's really a problem then being on the defensive so yeah. I, I like how that you guys are kind of predicting that and and, and looking into the, some of those issues well we should we want to get to a place that we where the principals in and uh, technology directors in school districts are embracing all forms of technology as they are because I think historically there's been an idea that if you prevent children getting access to social media or you prevent them from using technology, that's the way ahead. And it's not. I personally don't think it is. I think 
what we should be doing is educating good practice and using what we see as the means of doing so. So within that, yes, of course, we want to have some sites need to be blocked. We need to make sure that you know, we are using allow um, block lists to prevent access to really hardcore sites. But I'd much rather educate each and every child in terms of how not to go looking for that and actually why they shouldn't go to that. I think that's a stronger message. It's the you know, teach somebody to fish metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. But going beyond that, I think what we can also do is start to track and pull data into one space to start perceiving what should be happening in the future with the technology itself. We need to recognize that a lot of the places where our children are going to today, they can get access to support in ways that we don't understand. I mean, sadly, our generation, we don't honestly know what teenagers are experiencing today. We don't actually know what they're going through. You know, there's a lot of research out there at the moment that's, that's telling us quite categorically that children don't feel that there's an adult in their life that relates to what they're going through and therefore they won't go to them for support. Wow. Whereas there are other teenagers in forums, online gaming, yeah. social media, but they can get advice uh -huh. from and we shouldn't be dismissing that. Actually, we that's a shouldn't. really powerful place. We shouldn't, but I guess, and I'm not trying to pander to you, but sometimes that comfort, well, kind of like, you know, gang problems of, of, you know, really high concentration of gangs, that is their family and that's the people they trust. It's just that those aren't the people that really the have your message. message. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, so I, I, I get that. So, uh, stating the obvious, doesn't I'm picking up a slight bit of accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Clearly, you're not from the United States, um, but you guys are having a growing presence here in the United States. What has been uniquely different from starting to learn how to do business in the United States? I mean, what differences with the school cultures, with the kids? So I think what our children are going through, there is a similarity. Obviously, there are, there are phrases that are different, the wording that's different. Right. You know, you, you, you've had shootings in the US, we've had stabbings in the UK, you know, gang culture is there. For us, we, we, we don't necessarily class them as gangs, but they exist, you know. <laughs> um, the difference in trading, though, is in terms of both at a federal and a state level, how schools are controlled, how states are very independent and very different in terms of how they're tackling education, um, in the UK, you tend to find you, you have your broad reach to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and England are very different. But within England, the legislation is set. It is you know, consistent between all the local authorities. There's much more autonomy at a school level within the UK than you tend to get in the US. So there are differences in terms of who is controlling the school state, who are making the decisions, who, what the procuring authorities are. They tend to differ. But... Broadly speaking, you know, the curricula is generally the same and what children are experiencing is broadly the same. The levels of advancement of the education technology is broadly the same. You know, the big education companies tend to be um, prevalent as well. So there are lots of similarities, but I think the, tra the biggest differences are in terms of the trading. So, uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to, an insight on is that, um, I'd, and obviously we, before we had press record, we were talking about some of your work abroad in, in other uh, developing countries. But um, if there's one sometimes bone I have to pick is that in the United States, a lot of times there's been some education leaders uh, tip their hat to like, say, Finland mm -hmm. and say, like, in, in, in one breath, they're like, hey, creativity and innovation need to be embraced. And man, they're doing such a great job in Finland. Mm. And you're like, okay, why do we know that? Well, because their test scores are very high. Wait, you just said that compliance and test scores really aren't as important. Yeah, that's true. 
uh, like my focus has always been innovation, creativity. What have you seen in your travels on what is good education compliance mm. and what is good innovation coming up with things that haven't really been done yet, the creative side? It's, it's, so I spent some time working in Finland, so I, I, I know the education system. And you, you've got a country that's got four and a half million people. It's, right. You can't compare to the United right. States. Apples or the and oranges. They are very, very different. But what I do like about Finland is that they trust the teachers and they trust the head yes. teachers. So central government will come up with an initiative. It's there to be rolled out. The teachers and the head teachers select whether they're going to adopt that initiative and whether they're going to roll it through. They will see whether it suits their particular context. And I like that. I think that's about really high quality teachers in a really high quality environment where their level of sophistication is such that they're able to either embrace, but also culturally that's acceptable in that space. And you see similar things in Norway and Sweden and so on and so forth. If you go to Singapore and across Asia, it's much more prescriptive. You tend to find there's less sort of um, out the box thinking. It's much more prescriptive in terms of how strategy and innovation is pulled forward. And there has to be a, uh, an understanding between the benefits of both. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all approach. I, I, I don't think, you know, when I hear innovation in education, I always worry about it a little bit because it's as if somebody woke up in the morning and decided, oh, I'm going to be innovative today. It doesn't work that way. Innovation comes from a series of experiences that leads somebody to that light bulb thought process. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's that that takes us down an avenue and takes us down a route where we start to find either technology as an answer to a problem or you know you have to experience the problem before you want to go and find a solution right. and it's a it's a series of thought processes that get you to that point so you can force it to a certain point but i never think it really works in that space i think where we're going to see um changes in pedagogy the one nice someone, thing someone's about having a good yes, time right? yeah, yeah. yeah there we go where you're going to see advances in pedagogy that tends to come from where teachers have been allowed to develop a theme yeah. and a theory and try and push things forward. My question, though, is about the relevance of curriculum and whether the curriculum that we have today that we see throughout yes. the world is the right curriculum. Right. And whether actually what we're seeing is a curriculum that was effectively dictated by Gutenberg and the invention of the book and, yep. and whether the, it's stopping from technology really growing in the way it should grow. What about vocational courses versus academic courses? Right. What about making curriculum suit children and what they're going to be experiencing in 10 years' time rather than what we think they should do because it's what we did when we were children you know right. I, I think there are areas for evolution to be had that we're simply not tapping into yet yeah i i i couldn't agree more i i, I see some and i'm not like discounting anybody's culture but like traditionally you think of china and memorization at a high high level and um that's great kids cannot be innovative if they don't have a baseline of education However, if that's the end of the destination, was just memorizing things, innovation doesn't thrive. Well, rote learning is exactly what it is. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's, that's the thing that, that concerns me is that sometimes we have um, a reverence for good test scores, hmm. but then a lot of employers that I'm talking to are like, hey, just because the kid got into a famous college and got a great SAT score didn't necessarily equate to success after academia. And that's what concerns me is that if we put too much of a focus on, did you do good on the test? Awesome. Then our work here is done. Not necessarily. Not where the jobs of the future are moving. And the jobs that are absolutely being automated and going away hmm. are the ones that relied on rote memory. Well, that's right. And also, of course, if you're looking at a well-rounded human being and somebody uh, yes. that's going to be productive in society, 
the, the fact that they scored a particular grade in a particular science doesn't necessarily lend itself to that. I think what we need to be looking for are ways of allowing children to grow and develop their own skills that, that play to their strengths but also make them really productive members of society. Yes. Well, glad you said that because that's also like something that drives me nuts and, and I, I, I think probably uh, people like Seth Godin have said it better than me. Like I, I like his definition. Education can be boiled down to uh, solving interesting problems and the leadership to get it done. Uh, but the, the what you hit on is also <clears throat> doubling down not on what you're not good at, but finding some of the things you are good at and allowing time. I get it. We have remediation for things you're not good at, but at some point, hit a minimum standard and then get to move on. Allow more time. Could you, like, you know, we're a sports-obsessed nation. Mm. No one could imagine a school forcing LeBron James to take more golf lessons. It's a waste of his time. Yeah. He's never going to be good at golf. He's too tall. I shouldn't say that. He's probably good at everything. But he's probably good at everything. Right. He's probably good at everything. Okay, Charles Barkley. I've seen the man play golf. Yeah. It's all. But like, you know, it it was pretty evident. This man is going to specialize in one sport. Quit making him take so many golf lessons. Mm. I have met several children that the culture of school sometimes of like just like let me take the minimum. Let's just say let's just say they they. Uh, their word people and math just isn't going they're never going to get a job in the industry make sure they know basic add subtract multiply divide make sure they understand money hmm. and then pass that give them extra time on the things that they think they might pursue well it's interesting so i'm a mathematician first and foremost but um financial literacy is not mathematics and developing yeah. financial literacy in children is probably of greater value than whether they understand the cosine rule. Yes. Now, so I, I'm, I'm a traitor to my own cause in some ways, but, right. but actually that's going to be a life skill and one that they would, would value and take forward. 100%. Their health and well-being, being able to make good decisions about their health, being able to make good decisions about where they spend their time and put their effort, those are things that, that we should be helping children to uh, capitalize upon. Give them the tools to make smart decisions. Stop trying to clone them. Now, society <laughs> says clone them because I can cope with uh, that, but uh, individualism says don't. Right? I, well, old society used to say that. If Henry Ford was still hiring people, mm. I would agree. Yeah. But he's not. And I think that that's the thing that drives me nuts. I have, in, in my anecdotal way, I have seen the bookends not appreciate this. And by bookends, I mean the very um, compliance-based... Uh, schools that are rough around the edges, and then the preparatory schools. The preparatory schools have that dreaded word of tradition. Mm. We're not going to change. Have you seen where our kids go? They go to the famous colleges. And then you have the schools that I get it. They don't want too much autonomy for their kids because they're afraid chaos might happen. I, I, I can disagree with that, but like yeah. they're like, hey, we're afraid that if we give them a little too much freedom, that's bad. I've seen more movement from the middle because they're taking a look at the economy and taking a look at the future employers and starting to get like, maybe we need to start rethinking school. But if, well, see, I'm, I'm definitely in that camp. I, I really am. So first thing I think, freedom and space are not the same thing. Mm. Freedom to develop and having the space to develop mm -hmm. can be interpreted in very different ways. I agree. Freedom oh, is a free-for-all. I'm going to have right? fun with this. Space yes. is I'm going to create a structured, safe environment for you yes. to explore your learning. Keep going. 
explore yourself as a human being, explore yes. yourself as an individual. I've got a 16-year-old at home. I could not tell you today how that 16-year-old is going to be in 10 years' time, what he'll be doing, where he'll be going. I'm sure he'll be successful because everything tells me he will be. And mm -hmm. assuming nothing untoward happens along the way, I'm pretty sure he's going to be you know, a well-adjusted human being and adding to society. But as a sportsman, as a scientist, I couldn't tell you. I honestly don't know. But I want to give him the space to find out. Right. So here's my only rub. And I agree with all that. I had a, so we had briefly talked before we pressed mm -hmm. record, but I used to have a class called Innovation and in Open Source Learning, mm -hmm. where the first seven weeks was we taught you some, how to think for yourself, how to backward design, how to form a team, uh, how to use LinkedIn as a 16-year-old. By the way, the world is yours on LinkedIn if <laughs> yeah. you want to be successful and be 16. But then the rest of the year was open source learning. The things that you want to learn, I probably don't teach. Mm. Hey, I want to learn and code in Python. I don't do that. So you open source your learning. Here was the problem. A lot of the people that still understood the culture of school were waiting around for, for me to tell them what to do. And this is a class where I gave them space to be free. I just didn't, would choose not to but, crack the whip, and that yeah. was the hard part. But that, that's freedom versus space. Space for me says you give them the space to learn and to be creative and follow a chain of thoughts. Yeah. But because you're creating an environment to allow them to be successful, some of that is going to be about stimulating them and emotionalizing True. them, and that could be cracking and, the whip. Right? And that was that was the thing that was exhausting. And and then I started to realize that's most people. Mm. It's called the New Year's resolution. Yeah, absolutely. It is fun to say, so like. Literally, the class would fill up pretty quick because this was a class where you could do the things that you wanted to do. That sounds amazing. But when I told you that I was going to hold you accountable and eventually you had to choose something. By the way, I was even a huge fan of quitting. You could work on something for two weeks and if you're like, fundamentally, this is not right for me. I don't like this. Great. Drop it. What are you going to do next? But there had to be a next. So that's why when I see the innovation movement in Ed, sometimes you're like, hey, just open up a space and they'll do something. I'm like, it's not that easy. And we're no better as adults. Hmm. I'm not trying to throw kids under the bus. Far from it. Adults, I'm like, hey, everybody says they want to improve. The doing part is the hard. The accountability is hard. But also and understanding what success looks like is hard. Because if you don't know what success looks like, yes. don't bother. And getting them Stop. to write their own metrics yeah. and getting them to write their own goals was really a biggest part of it. And and the ones that really I got to, I was like, I don't care. I'm like, take your grade off. I'm like, mm. if you just if you tell me you want an A, I'll give it to you. But I'm here to make you a successful person. What do you want to work on? Because a lot of times they would choose a project that they think that I would like. That hoping that would be a better grade. I'm like, no, 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 no. Dude, this is for you. This is the most selfish class in the world. I am here to cater to your needs. Mm. And it sounds great until you realize that you have, you're have you responsible now for you. A teacher just telling you to sit down and shut up is easy. We like to complain about it. Mm. You like to complain about it, but it's harder to say I am in control of some of my learning, which, by the way, even the excuse is, well, the school doesn't have this equipment. I'll get it for you. Yeah, or but that's true, we can, but this is true personalization, isn't it? Yeah, but it, you know, not personalization that's driven down from the top, but yes. personalization that's On driven from way. within. Yep, 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 yep. Define your own curriculum. Define where you want to go. Yeah, and be willing to turn around and try again is is you know is is a very important skill. Yeah, the you know the the number of people that get a job for life and do the same thing from the day they leave university all the way through. Yeah, it's going to be none, right? We, we all take pivots in our life and, and right. move forward. We redevelop every seven years. So all these things are yeah. broadly well known. What we don't teach, though, 
is how children and learners should be selective. Mm-hmm. How they take this enormous amount of information that they have in their hands and pick and choose the bits that are yeah. accurate, that are worthwhile, that are actually, you know, add to the journey rather than detract from it. That are you know, that, that are giving them value in ways that we can't conceive. And partly this is because I think that's very difficult for us to control as educators from a central point of view, but also because I don't think we can perceive what is going to be of value for them in ten years' time. Yeah let alone 20 years' time, 30 years' time, or at the end of their career, how could we possibly understand what that's going to look like? You know, we're, There are many people who probably think they might be able to and that will venture an opinion, but the reality is we don't know what technology is going to look like, we don't know what the workplace is going to look like, we don't know what the education space is going to look like. Yeah. All these things are being reinvented continually. And in some ways, budget constraints, federal you know, constraints, are holding back that innovation and that growth yeah. and that evolution. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the things that would um, make me a little less anxious is that sometimes I'd get students that two years after they had my class would come back and go, I get it now. You know, us giving them the space and the freedom to try. Hmm. And, and even sometimes they'd go through the motions and they make sure they got their good grade. Eventually, it kind of caught on. Hmm. And eventually, that mindset of really, like, you know, we, we call it the entrepreneurial way of being. I don't think that everybody should be an entrepreneur, but if we think like them and start looking yeah. in problems and looking how to scale and build things, it was kind of our end of, um, because it, it, it's, it's, it's hard it's hard to teach responsibility. But I think partly because we're so focused on the, the ultimate goal, you know, the high-stake assessment, the output, yeah. we're forgetting the journey of getting there. And one of the yeah. things that I try and bring in as a cultural experiment within any organization that I take over is it's okay to fail. Yeah. Don't, don't fail twice in the same way, right? <laughs> but we learn far more from our mistakes than we ever learn from our successes. Absolutely. So the more mistakes we make, the more we're trying. The more we're trying, the more successful we're going to be. And we have to just get our heads around that <laughs> right. and accept that and go for it, right? Otherwise, you just so stand the, back. And the, you get suboptimal performance because absolutely. people just don't put in the same level of effort because they're just so scared of getting it wrong. Absolutely. And, and your investors, when, are they in the room when you say that too? <laughs> um, well, but yeah. But if, if you're going Actually, to the right investors, the I'm sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say my investors, I'm very happy with the investors I've got. I'm very, very lucky because they see that that, that learning cycle, getting the organization to learn, institution yeah. to learn. Now, I'm, I'm very early with this journey of this particular organization, but already you can see the changes in the learning and there's some great people in the organization who want to make it better and are willing yeah. to give it a go and accept that perhaps they're not going to get it right every time. I so a I was half joking, but I love that answer because you're right. The right board of directors, the right investors, uh, the ones that are truly behind that just cause. Mm. Uh, I'm sure that maybe maybe there's an investor in two that just wants a bottom line, and God bless them. But uh, I, I I like the fact that your immediate reaction was yeah. we got some people that are down for the cause, and yeah, that's important. Well, the right investor knows that if the cause is just and the journey is just. Actually, yes, it'll pay dividends. Literally, yes. yeah. You know, you're going to get to a point where the interest in what you're doing is far greater than your EBITDA, yeah. because the smart acquirer or future investor realizes that you know your EBITDA multiple is based upon not what you're doing today as much as it is on what you can do tomorrow, the potential of what you're starting to do tomorrow. Right. So I think we you know we're we're going in the right space and going in the right direction, particularly with Imperio. You know, we we've got. Our journey is going to be far greater than we're doing today. 
So you said, my the, the companies, this isn't your first go around at being. I don't want to call you a mercenary CEO, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you 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 know how to come in and optimize. Uh, what gets you What gets you excited about? Because you said you're six months in. Uh, less, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what gets you really excited about digging in your sleeves and or rolling up your sleeves and digging into this? So every company I've been involved in, because I am a, an educationist and a teacher, you know, it has to be something that is adding back. This is not about the bottom line. It's not only about revenue. I was very lucky to work for a, a really inspiring CEO when I was working for Pearson, who said that you know revenue. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. She said it much more eloquently than I ever will. Revenue is not what we do, it allows us to do what we're about to do. You know, if we're an education company and a learning company, that's what we do. The revenue allows us to get that and perform that. And so I, I firmly believe in that. So whether it's a learning management company, whether it's, a, in our case, it's a safeguard and wellbeing company, or it's, it's changing education in Africa, there's always got to be a reason for doing what you're doing. It's always got to be something that gets you out of bed in the morning and realizes that the journey is a worthwhile one and it's an honorable one. I totally dropped the ball by not starting off the podcast that, yeah, you were in education before all this. So apologies on that. You've been in education for a very long time. Yeah, I know. We were talking about that off air, and I forget to mention the South podcast. Uh, I'll also uh, disagree with you on behalf of every American listening to this. I guarantee you you said it just as eloquently because everybody's picking up on the accent. Although, was the CEO of Pearson also British? I don't... Uh, No, she was American. Okay, okay. Because, like, you know, I'm not saying as eloquent. Like, I don't know. You're doing a pretty good job. Uh, but I, I, I like the fact that, yeah, you're, you're coming in. You're rolling up your sleeves. And, and, uh, but you're mission-driven. And the fact that you've got an educator's heart and an educator's background is, is really uh, why we got set up for this podcast. I, I had, a, you know, your publicist reach out to me and go, I got, I got the guy. <laughs> so certainly glad, uh, certainly glad that she did. But, no, I... Um, a, I enjoyed talking a little bit of educational uh, philosophies with you. I, I, I can't Same. agree more. And um, and seeing these things as a positive. I mean, yeah, I, I get it. Like, Big Brother's watching. A, a lot of data sometimes is scary. But um, full moment of disclosure. Uh, and it turned out to be not a joke. But um, we got a heads up hmm. from my school, from my son's school, because of a web search he did. Uh, he is an avid YouTuber, and uh, he had misspelled something, <laughs> and uh, they were concerned. And so I had a laugh because as soon as they called me, I'm like, I know exactly which YouTube channel is, and he's fine. Yeah. But I love the fact that we're that they had the technology to say this has been flagged. How's Grant? Is he okay? Yeah. Is his, his behavior indifferent? Why? Well, there was a flagged video that that was we think about this. I'm like, oh, a. He's fine, but that's the good side of this, and it is. So big. I mean, the whole Big Brother's watching you. You know, I would hate children to think that they're being spied upon, that they have no privacy, that that everything they do is being tracked and reported to somebody. It shouldn't be that way. It's the exceptions that should be recorded. <coughs> if there is something of a concern, that's what should be flagged. Otherwise, trust your children to to, to make wise decisions, unless you know that they're not. Give them the space, back to the space again. Give them the space to develop, the space to learn. I also think though we need to start looking outside the school environment because you know, if you are a parent with a teenager, you know, chances are they have a football coach, they have a rugby coach, they have a running coach, whatever. There are lots of other people involved in that child's life, not just what's happening within the classroom. 
And we need to start spreading our wings a little bit and allowing those other agencies and those other organizations to feed into that as well. Reason being that a small concern in the classroom that a teacher notices in its own probably wouldn't register. But if there's also a small concern from the coach or from the dance teacher, it starts to build a slightly more interesting picture. And at that point, that's the point at which potentially we should be flagging to the parents to say, or to the counselor, we need to go and speak to person X. Because there are a few signs in a few different places. There's been an attitude change. The tone of their language is changing. The words they're using is changing. The way they're expressing themselves is slightly, well, just a little bit, but enough to make us wonder whether there's something else going on underneath this. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more concerns coming to the fore, but at an earlier and earlier stage, because we're starting to build a much more holistic view of the individual child. And I think it's a very important move to us to be making. Yeah. No, I, I, I've seen that difference, especially in the differences between millennials and Zs. Mm. Um, and yeah, just it's kind of interesting being aware of certain things and being able to tamp things down before they get out of control is, I think, going to be a, a huge benefit for us. And, um, you know, I, sometimes the pendulum swings so hard uh, politically yeah. that we're hoping just to <laughs> tamper things down be, before yeah. they get out of hand. So I, I, I love that. Well, hey, look, uh, honored that we, we connected. Um, it's been love, a pleasure. Love the fact that you've got the educator's heart and the educator's background and uh, continued work and success. Obvi- like, are, are, are you a LinkedIn Twitter guy? Where can they find you? I'm definitely on LinkedIn. You can find me uh, on LinkedIn. I don't ask me what my, my handle is, but, uh, yeah, if you, you search my name, Justin Riley and Impero, and I'll, I'll pop up. Awesome. Well, I, yeah. Follow this guy because uh, there's some other stories about his work in Africa that I'm sure that uh, maybe there's another podcast in the future. But oh, uh, definitely, yeah, it's a fascinating su- continent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. continued success, Justin. Thank you so much for being Thank on the you. show.